So far, in considering the, the Christian and the Old Testament law, we've looked back to the situation at Sinai and also looked to the New Testament, particularly in the area of personal ethics and the standards that the church uh, would be um, advocating for believers. We've also talked about the threefold division of the law, not as an original perception of the Israelites, but as one that we use to try to understand it. And I've talked a little bit about the model law. I've also talked a little bit about the ceremonial law. But there still remains the two areas that are linked. There is the third aspect of the law, the judicial law, and there is the other aspect of the situation, which is not what the church says to the community of faith, but what the, the witness that the church gives uh, at the level of the standards of behavior that it would expect to prevail in the world. What should the church be saying uh, regarding the standards that would be expected to inform public behavior, the law of the land? And so this third lecture uh, is focusing on the area of political implications. And I suppose we've been going from the what I would call the more solid ground towards the more controversial. I, I, I recognize there are a number of areas here over which there's been continuing disagreement. But the first thing I want to emphasize is that the church should be speaking about the area of public morality. Throughout this century, there's been what's been called the, the, the Great Reversal. Uh, there was the Great Awakening in, in terms of revival earlier. The Great Reversal is the, the fact that the, the church and the Christians have shrunk back from involvement in public affairs. There's been an increasing tendency uh, over the century not to be involved. Perhaps it's been reversed more recently. But certainly evangelicals uh, still show a very considerable measure of reluctance to get involved. Uh, that arose earlier on because there was the need to gird up one's loins to fight the battle within the church against liberalism. And there was also very obviously at times a reaction against the social gospel that was promoting so very much a utopian program of a kind of Christian socialism. In America, there was the influence of dispensationalism that presented the sort of sinking ship syndrome of this world. This world is condemned. This world is a present evil age. It's beyond redemption. Uh, why spend time trying to sort out the ship that's sinking? Look forward to what is still to come. Uh, and the, the Christian distanced himself uh, to a very great extent from public debate and public involvement. But whatever the factors were, and perhaps there were many uh, coming together in this area, uh, there was a, a large measure of, of indifference and silence regarding public standards, the morality of public life. That has been changing. It's changed in America. It's changed on this side of the Atlantic as well. 
Over in the States, there's been a debate. It's focused around theonomy, Christian reconstructionism. I don't know whether I should mention it or not, because it is, I think, very much still an American sort of phenomenon. But it's one that's been instrumental in bringing a lot of questions uh, to the attention of the evangelical community. Theonomy's been much decried and maligned. Some people have tried to treat it as a heresy. That's certainly going far too far. Um, its distinctive approach, or what is distinctive about theonomy, is that it f- argues that the standards of judicial law found in the Sinai Covenant, and particularly the penalties and punishments of the Sinai Covenant are those that should still be uh, maintained by, well, the discussion normally talks about the civil magistrate. That's an older theological uh, thing. I suppose nowadays we'd naturally say by the state, the civil magistrate, the, the main ruler in the land. And they would be arguing that that's what Christians should be promoting. The law of Moses that is applicable uh, to the state, uh, to what constitutes a crime, and the way in which crime should be punished. Now, I'm not a theonomist. Uh, I think they're misguided in the extent to which they uh, would apply the Old Testament uh, judicial law. But at the same time, uh, their, their approach has got a great many uh, features that I find are true to Scripture. As I said, it was an American approach, which means that it was worked out within the evangelical community over against dispensationalism. Dispensational theology, as you know, uh, finds a great break uh, when the Old Testament comes to an end. When Christ comes, there is a new dispensation. And dispensational theology argued that the state had no place in religious matters. They would find from the New Testament an ethic for the church. They would find in Christian injunctions there uh, for the believer and for the church community. But their argument was very much that the ethic of the New Testament doesn't relate to the state. How should the state, the civil magistrate, decide what's right and wrong? The argument was very much in terms of natural law, the light of nature. The light of nature and natural law means different things to different people. Uh, I can use the phrase natural law quite happily, but by that I mean something much more like creation law, the moral law. Natural law there is what men can find as right and proper by their own reason, unaided by revelation. And over against that, theonomy said, look, if you're going to be Christian you've got to have standards that are God's standards. And I think that's a a very reasonable way of looking at it. Uh, That is what I find in Scripture, that if we're going to advocate standards of behavior, 
We want them to be standards that are derived from Scripture. The church has really no right to speak if it does not have a message that is based on and drawn from the Word of God. I think it's also the case that if you say man can think out for himself the standards of his behavior, you're really not doing justice to the scripture doctrine of the fall of man, the clouded nature of man's understanding. Uh, If man's left to himself to work out standards, these standards are going to be clouded by sin, clouded by man's sinful perception of what's going on in the world around him. It's also the case, of course, that in a democratic system, if you decide what's right and wrong on the basis of what man thinks, your decisions are always subject to the rule of the majority, and you therefore can get changes in basic ethical standards depending on the way in which the majority moves. Your ethics has become totally contextualized and conditioned. We don't want, I don't think we want, I'll speak for myself, I don't want to go down that path. I think there's something basically misguided there. I would argue that we know what God wants in terms of the moral law. And it is the same set of standards that we wish to see applied in terms of public morality, in terms of uh, the political situation. How then should we think about going about it? One thing that strikes me, struck me very forcibly when I tried to prepare this lecture and look round to get reasonable material to get my mind going, was how old-fashioned all the discussions are. You're going back, dusting off old tomes uh, to, to find earlier discussions. And they all tend to be dated. Very rarely are discussions of this matter updated into the sort of democracy that we are living in now. They tend to talk about the civil magistrate, which would cover a king, which would cover some ruler. Whereas nowadays when we're talking about the state, we are really talking about democratic majority opinion. So the questions that we have to look at in terms of the political implications of the law are to what extent should the church be involved in seeking to influence democratic majority opinion and given that it should be involved in it, what actually should it be saying? There have always been differences in the church, uh, in the Protestant church, over the extent to which the church should be involved with the state. Uh, At the Reformation, there were those who took the Anabaptist view, uh, that the Christian really couldn't be involved in the state, that a Christian shouldn't be a civil magistrate, a ruler, shouldn't go in for politics, because the, the Christian was called to exercise mercy, And the magistrate had as his God-given rule that of administering justice strictly. And this was inconsistent with a Christian profession. So that they very much 
came away from involvement with the state. The Lutherans had their own distinctive position, but Reformed Christianity, Reformed branch of the Protestant tradition, has had no hesitation in saying that the Christian and the church should be involved. And a Christian magistrate, a Christian ruler, a Christian politician, doesn't cease to be a Christian by becoming a politician. And if as a Christian he is obligated to respect God's law, then so much the more should he respect God's law when he is putting forward proposals for public policy or when he is seeking uh, to bring others uh, to vote for him. It may well be that the individual has decided his standards. It should be the individual's decided his standards on the basis of what he finds in God's word. He may very well wish to argue for those standards in the light of natural reason, to commend them as being reasonable, as being proper, and saying, look what happens if you don't in terms of the the moral depravity that will result in the community. But the basic guideline the basic set of standards that should inform the Christian politician are to be found from the word of God, from the moral law. The Christian as a politician, the Christian as a voter in a modern democracy is not thereby loosed from obligation to God. And the programs of action we support should be those that are in conformity with the word of God. Of course, I don't expect there would be unanimity. In this sinful world that we live in, there are often moral dilemmas. And it may be that now one and now another particular policy might be advocated. I myself put that at the level of party politics. At the level of by which policies should we implement our general goals. And I don't think it's at all helpful if the church becomes identified with one particular set of policies over against another. But that's not to say that the church shouldn't act as a a moral guide regarding the goals of policy and also criticizing particular policies if they infringe the standard of God's word. The church's task in the new age, in I better avoid the new age. The church's task in the present age under the new covenant is to teach all the nations of God's word. It is a task that is primarily that of evangelism. It is that of bringing individuals to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But teaching all nations also involves the task of promoting the moral standards of God's word. The church's task isn't exhausted at the level of primary evangelism. God doesn't save apart from his covenant. And he wants those he has saved to live lives that reflect their commitment to him. So the church's task, the Christian's task, in a democracy as political beings is to set the moral agenda of the day, to advise on the the basic values that should be proposed. The way to implement those values is, I think, often not specified by Scripture. It is a matter of 
a considerable degree of freedom being left in the mature age of God's people. Let's think a little bit more about the standards that should be followed. I think we, when we try to work this out, very readily, very soon become aware of how little the New Testament has to say about it. The New Testament has much teaching about how the Christian should live, about how the church should conduct its affairs. But Palestine in our Lord's day was an occupied country. You did not order, it, was, it was not the ordinary topic of conversation uh, as to um, how Caesar in Rome should conduct his affairs. And equally, the New Testament epistles are epistles written to a church community that is without political power. The matter of how to formulate public policy is not on the agenda in Corinth or Galatia or Thessalonica. Uh, So Paul doesn't address these questions directly. For all that, there are a number of very clear guidelines. First of all, Jesus himself indicates very clearly that his kingdom is not of this world. The Jews were looking for a political messiah. They wanted rid of Rome. They wanted to expel the Romans who had conquered their land. And Jesus goes out of his way to say, I'm not a political revolutionary at that level. I'm not one who has come here to expel Rome from Palestine. He confessed, he he gives a public statement to the effect, if my kingdom were of this world, then my followers would fight to prevent me from being handed over. Jesus' kingdom is not focusing on political structures in the first place. And the church's task, the church's role, the Christian's mission is primarily spiritual. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, are not worldly. And therefore it seems to me uh, to be perfectly legitimate to say that in this new covenant period, the goals of religion will not be advanced through the use of political power. The state, the democratic authorities have no right or role to seek to direct one individual to worship in this way, another individual not to worship in that. The area of religion is something that the Christian ruler as such, the Christian politician, has no right to interfere in, interfere with. And the church is quite misguided. It is going against the apostolic injunction if it seeks to enlist uh, political, worldly uh, methods of suasion uh, to further the kingdom of Christ, which is its primary task. Evangelism is not carried out by the power of the sword. But it's equally clear from our Lord's teaching that the Christian, his follower should respect the state. 
You remember how there are various parallels, but say in Mark 12, verses 13 to 17, some of the Pharisees and Herodians, that doesn't, we don't quite get that when we just read it, but that's rather, <clears throat> can I gloss it as saying, uh, some conservatives and labor politicians came to him. It's opposite sides coming together in this one. It's a two-pronged attack. They wouldn't normally be acting in concert, but they are, in order to trap him in a statement. And they speak very nicely. We know you're truthful. You defer to no one. You teach the way of God. And can you get a more up-to-date question than this? Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? That's the New American Standard translation. Is it lawful, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? And as you know, he asked for a coin uh, and said to them whose likeness and, and whose inscriptions this. Uh, they said Caesar's. And we have the saying, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. You see, they, caught, they thought they'd caught Jesus on, in a dilemma. Uh, if he said, don't pay, then that was him a revolutionary against Rome. If he said, do pay, then he wasn't a true Jewish nationalist and the people would have nothing to do with him. Uh, he, he was siding with Rome, he was a quizzling, he was a traitor. Uh, so, showing a wisdom that's not of this world, he said, show me the coin. Even the coin, the Roman coin, was obnoxious to the Jew. It had an image of Caesar on it, and some of the coins had the inscription claiming deity for the emperor. But our Lord says there is a legitimate area of state authority. There is an area that Caesar, that, that is the civil power, has a right to determine. But that must always be seen in the light of the fact that there, are, there is the area that God has to determine. Now some people then say, well, there's Caesar's circle and there's God's circle and they're apart. I think the answer is very much more saying there's Caesar's circle and there surrounding it as just part of it is the totality of the things that are God's. And that, I think, fits in with what we see Paul expressing in Romans 13. Romans 13, 1 to 7, is the most extended discussion in the New Testament about the role of the state. Perhaps we could read it through just now. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, 
for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due to them. Tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. The Christian does not decry state authority. There is a recognition here that the state has a legitimate authority. And yet, Paul's emphasis is much more on the fact that the authority the state has is a derived authority. And perhaps that's a message that we need to bring out into the open much more uh, in our present day and generation. One of the great dangers in modern thinking is the danger of statism. It hasn't. It was very prevalent in communist countries, but it's still very much alive, even in democracies. Do you have a problem? Does society have a problem? Then we take the problem to the great problem solver, number 10. And we expect number 10 to pour loads of money to solve the big problem that's arisen. The modern thinking is identify a problem in society and the state must be in the position to provide the answer. And so the authority and influence of the state grows. Uh, the, the ultimate answer is the majority opinion in the ballot box. It's almost absolutized. It's very much the case that uh, one's true credentials as a Democrat are called into question if you in any way suggest that there's something that the majority opinion isn't the last word. Uh, we live in the age of the opinion poll. You want to know what to do about this or what to think about that? Well, choose a thousand people in a street corner somewhere and ask them, and the majority opinion is the one that has got some measure of um, acceptability, has got some measure of right in and of itself. There is no authority except from God. The state is the servant of God to you for good. The state has a role, a divinely given role, but it must always acknowledge that its authority is not supreme. Its authority is from God. And there is no state that can require of the Christian or any other individual absolute obedience. Acts 5.29 explicitly says, we must obey God rather than men. And Paul was saying that in another way, when he's saying that the state, the authority, is established by God. But then think about it. Of what state is Paul saying this? He's talking about Rome. He's talking about the Roman Empire. Who was the emperor? 
everyone's pretty well agreed it was Nero. Not Nero, well, the same Nero, but Nero's first five years or so in power, between 54 and 59 AD, uh, his regime wasn't the persecuting, burn them at the stake, put them in the, the arena a regime it later became. Uh, he was still influenced by uh, two very moderate uh, politicians, one of whom you may have heard of, Seneca, the other, Barras. Uh, his regime was one that was ostensibly promoting good, uh, promoting peace, uh, promoting uh, basic moral standards. And Paul has... It was an idolatrous regime. It was a regime that, that uh, certainly was pagan. But Paul's saying, insofar as it's fulfilling roles that are divinely assigned by God to the state, then the Christian should accept that authority, should pay tax, should pay custom, should render honor and fear to those who are in authority. And not just because he'll get punished, but also for conscience sake. It is a matter of obligation to God uh, to recognize the subordinate authority of the state. That, that's why uh, Scripture as a whole has always enjoined uh, prayer uh, for the state. That goes way back to, say, Jeremiah's day, uh, when Jerusalem had been captured, but before the final fall in 586 BC, there were already exiles in Babylon, and Jeremiah wrote to them and said to them, Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Jeremiah 29 and 7. Recognizing the interlinking of the well-being of the state in which they were, even though it was a state that had deported them from their own land and their own good. And it's the same message that's found in the New Testament as well. First Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, where Paul enjoins supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all men, for kings and all who are high in high positions, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, godly, and respectful in every way. When the state is promoting that which God has placed within its realm of competence, then the message of the New Testament is that the Christian is one, the Christian is obligated, as before God, to respect that authority, to pay those taxes, to acknowledge that state. There is the danger I've mentioned of statism. But the New Testament doesn't prescribe a particular structure. The Christian gospel is quite apart from the acknowledgement of any specific political structure, be it a, a kingdom, democracy, oligarchy, whatever. The message of Christianity uh, is not one that sets up a specific state regime. That's quite different from the Old Testament. God set up a very specific regime for Old Testament Israel. 
it may, the, the, the need for having a king was at first optional, but if they were going to have a king, it had to be done in a specific way. The Old Testament state of Israel had a role in God, the outworking of God's saving purpose, which the of which other states, be the Old Testament in Old Testament times and New Testament times, which other states do not have. There is a fundamental difference between the state that God set up for his people in Old Testament times and every other state. The constitution of Israel the theocratic constitution of Israel in Old Testament times is totally linked in with God's covenant purpose at that time. For instance, if one looks at, say, Galatians 3.19, where Paul asks the question, what then was the purpose of the law? And by the law, he's talking about the Mosaic dispensation. He's particularly thinking, perhaps, of the ceremonial law, but he doesn't make that distinction. He's talking about the law in general, and it says, it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The, there was an aspect of the Mosaic um, covenant, the Mosaic dispensation, that was added to the promise, the gospel promise given to Abraham, it was added and it had a termination. That termination was in Christ. Again, verse 24, the law has become our tutor, schoolmaster, pedagogos, to lead us to Christ. It was a temporary... Um, set up that God devised with a particular purpose of preserving the identity of the seed of Abraham after the flesh until the time, the fullness of the time came when our Lord came in the flesh. All right, in Galatians, Paul is particularly focusing on ceremonial requirements, but the political constitution of Israel was distinct and different. It was for life in the land. Even the king, the Davidic covenant, David is there, a type of Christ. You can't look at the king of Israel uh, without bringing into the situation uh, the total uh, religious as well as civil dimension of what the king was representing. There's nothing like that. In the New Testament. I'm very uh, much taken by the Westminster Confession phrase that these, this judicial law was, has expired together with the expiry of the state of Israel, the Old Testament theocracy. And so the New Testament message is to a large extent, indifferent to the structure of the state. It's far more concerned with the moral standards that the politician espouses. What are these moral standards to be? 
Well, theonomy would give the answer that these moral standards are the standards of the Mosaic law, the, the judicial law. These should be applied in a very literalistic and straightforward way. I don't think so. I think we're dealing with a, a different situation. The question I take it to be very much more about the moral law, the creation norm, what God requires of all men. The state of Israel was part of God's saving purpose. But other states, as far as I can see, are part of the way in which the life of mankind, simply as creatures of God, are structured. The state has no saving role. The state is part of what, can, what is the creation realm. And it is the standards of God's creation, the moral law, that should inform the behavior of the ruler, of the Christian, of a Christian democracy. The judicial law of Israel, of course, was not apart from the moral law. It was a specific exemplification of it. And I'm by no means suggesting uh, that we say, oh, that's judicial, and put it in the bucket. I am saying that we can identify what's judicial, and then we ask ourselves, what does the general equity of this situation uh, require us to learn? If God worked out the moral law in Old Testament Israel in such and such a way, how is it that we should now work out the basic principles in our much more different situation? Let me be specific. I'm talking too generally. One of the biggest problems in the social order in Britain today is the prison system. People get imprisoned for all sorts of offences, and many would say that the, what the, the prisoners are exposed to within prisons is in end, far from helping them to reform their ways, it's uh, further degrading them. And we look at what God required in the Old Testament. And there are no prisons as such in the Old Testament. You can get prisons in Egypt. Joseph's in one. You'll get prisons in Babylon. There's prisons there. But custody of that sort was only used in Israel in the very short time that existed, and it was a short time, between someone being caught in an offense and the trial taking place. Sending them to prison was not an option uh, that God prescribed now we have to ask ourselves, situation's different. It may well be that there is now a place for imprisonment. But I think we can also legitimately say, well, what did God do in Israel? Well, what was it that was done? And there, there were several significant differences. There were no such things as fines in ancient Israel. The modern state views the administration of justice as a grand source of revenue. Somebody does wrong, fine them. 
In Israel, God said, if somebody does wrong, a wrong against a fellow, he compensates the one whom he has wronged. It's not the state takes the money. It's the original wrong is replaced. The original... <clears throat> I've solved my problem, but I'm not sure I've solved yours. <laughs> um, the, the original amount that's stolen is replaced plus compensation. So that there is a basic principle there of you compensate the one who has been defrauded. You compensate the one who has been cheated. You don't put money into the coffers of the state. Now, I think there are basic principles there that our re-examination of the judicial law of the Old Testament opens up that can be validly explored. But I am certainly not saying that we've got to go and say these are binding principles nowadays. What, we're say, what I'm arguing is, looking at the Old Testament law, we see that God there worked out in that particular time and in those circumstances, that particular type of society, for instance, uh, a certain way of going about things. Can we derive lessons from that? Examples from that. Not rigid rules or norms, but examples from which we can have valuable insight into the way in which we should act. I think the answer to that is very clearly yes. So I'm not saying that the judicial law, I'm not trying to argue the judicial law is totally to be forgotten about. There are lessons there, but it is no longer binding except insofar as general equity requires. That is, a sense of what is fair, of what is just, of what applies in our circumstances now. But if the Christian, when he becomes a politician, is to apply the moral law, we will have no problem, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, Thou shalt not bear false witness. How do you do thou shalt not covet? That's getting a bit more problematic because that's concerned with inner behavior. Shall we then say that the Christian, mad, Christian politician is only concerned with the external civil behavior of individuals? Okay. Remember the Sabbath day. Don't make idols. Don't take the name of God in vain. How should now the state view blasphemy, idolatry, the, the Lord's Day? These are very much bigger questions. And they become very much more um, pressing when you live, as we now do, in a multi-faith democracy. There is no longer a Christian consensus uh, there, we have now a variety of ideas of what constitutes blasphemy. Uh, we have a variety of ideas as to well, what is acceptable worship. The task of the magistrate is to provide, the task of the ruler is to provide an environment where people may live uh, peaceably, respectfully, uh, where they may live in, in a way that is outwardly moral and safe from, from violence and from depredation. And there is much 
that has been said when we have said that. We have then got to ask, and I'm not, I'm not saying I've got the answers, I've just got the questions. Um, we've then got to ask questions as to how we move on from there. It would be great if we had that much. But when we move on from there, we've got to recognize that there has to be toleration. There are some people who put forward the view that really, um, if there were a Christian majority in the land, the land should go back to a situation rather like Old Testament Israel. There should be a formal covenant. The nation should be nationally covenanted to the Lord. I think that's a total misconception of what's happened in the New Testament era. And I would, first of all, present just a sort of practical argument against it. Don't we feel there is something wrong in Muslim Islamic lands when the majority opinion says Islam is here the religion and the Christian missionary cannot enter? We have the other situation where our doors are open and people from everywhere can come in. We don't debar on religious grounds. And I think that for in a, in a democratic system, it is far healthier. The church's task is to present the gospel. The church's task is to, take in, is to present to individuals the message of salvation. And if that message is presented in God's blessing, then there will be an agreement regarding the moral law and moral standards. The magistrate is not to become involved in matters of religion, in matters of, of heresy or idolatry. It's quite different uh, from the state of Israel. Even, I think, if there was a 100% profession of faith in Christ in a country, we're not getting back to the specific role that Old Testament Israel had to play in the outworking of God's salvation purpose. I think we're in a situation where there has to be tolerance, where we have to allow that others have the right uh, to practice their own religion, where there is the right uh, for other religions to be able to state their case, and where there is the challenge for the Christian, rebut that case and present the message of salvation. The weapons of our warfare are spiritual, and they are mighty. It is God's word, blessed by his spirit, that will change the moral condition of a land. The law is essentially a negative force. It is constraining against evildoers. It is providing a general environment. Can I put it in terms of, say, the example of the covenant with Noah? God gave a covenant with Noah that is to endure as long as the sun and moon. It is age-long. It set a general environment against which God's purposes of salvation were going to be worked out and are still being worked out. Part of that is, part of that outworking is the modern state, or any state apart from Israel. This general background of providing rules and a structure uh, in which lives can be lived peacefully, peaceably, but it's not the task of the politician uh, to seek to constrain individuals as regards their religious beliefs. It's not the 
role of the politician uh, to persecute on religious grounds, it is the case that a measure of toleration, and in saying measure, I know I've left problems, a measure of toleration that has to be extended. So, the broad political agenda that I'm presenting just now is an agenda that says it's the moral law that we're looking at. The moral law that recognizes God as creator. Our knowledge of that moral law is not something that's derived by observing nature. It's derived from God's word. But it speaks to man's conscience because there is still there, however imperfectly, a measure of those moral standards. The state is not an institution that is a religious institution. It is ordained by God, it is under God, and its purpose is to provide the general environment in which the church may proceed with its task of evangelism. In doing that, the magistrate ought and the Christian politician must have a regard to God's moral standards. He may get considerable instruction from the judicial law of the Old Testament, but he has each time to weigh up that instruction to assess its applicability in the light of the circumstances that prevail now. And the greatest boon that a state can have is a church that is healthy, that is reaching out with the gospel, that is being blessed by God in the, the moral and spiritual, spiritual and moral, it should be the other way around, in the spiritual and moral regeneration of its people. But that is not the politician's task. That is the church's task. The politician's task is to provide the general environment in which the church may go on with its activity. Now, I recognize that uh, this lecture has been a little bit shorter, but that's deliberate because I think it would be much more useful uh, to take up matters now in general discussion in question and answer. Would be surprised if um, what had been said in that lecture certainly doesn't bring forth some questions and comments, and indeed what has been said in the two lectures this morning. So for the next half hour or so, or a little more than that, we've got an opportunity to to make our comments heard and to put questions for clarification and comments. So really, I'm going to throw that open to you now. Stephen. Stephen. Can I ask, uh, to, to go back to the beginning of your um, talk, you mentioned about uh, the theonomy of Christian Reconstructionism being American in origin, but you've also said that it's not the duty of the magistrate or the state to interfere in religious matters, but you've also quoted the Westminster Confession on which you're Church relies as its subordinate standards. And the Confession also does state that, that it's the magistrate's duty to protect and promote uh, 
truth, the true religion. And if you go back to the 17th century, the position you are arguing now would not have been accepted by the framers of that confession. And uh, <coughs> I'm not saying that necessarily all of them would agree 100% with theonomists today, but you see, the particular thing you are arguing, that the state should be neutral, would have been abhorred by the framers of the Westminster Confession. And um, it seems to me there's a, a contradiction there, but there's a more fundamental question. Uh, you've also said that um, the state shouldn't persecute people on religious grounds. But, I mean, who is saying that it should? The, the state operates on terms of what is just or unjust. And in a Christian country, uh, what we're saying is that what is just or unjust is determined by the community's appeal to ultimate standards. And therefore, the question is simply this, at the end of the day, whom should the, the state obey? Should it or should it not obey God and God's standards of justice? Should the magistrate obey God or not? I think you've misunderstood me. Uh, I am certainly arguing that the magistrate should obey God's standards. Uh, I have been trying, I may not have succeeded, but I've been trying to elucidate the Westminster Confession. Uh, the old distinction was the, the province of the magistrate is kirka sacra, not in sacris. Um, let me try. The magistrate has a duty uh, to protect the church. And that's what I was taking up in terms of leading godly and peaceable lives, that the church should not be um, victimized, that the services of religion should be allowed to go on, uh, that there shouldn't be any harassment of the church in evangelism, in outreach, or in anything of that sort. But the civil magistrate has no right in sacris. Uh, he is not the one who is to set up religious standards. He is not the one uh, who is going to have the, uh, any say in the in, inner organization of the church. But that's not the question, you see, and that's not the question that theonomy is addressing. No, but, I, but the thing is that theonomy is addressing its own question. I am saying that the, the Christian ruler or the ruler should be obeying biblical standards, the standards of the moral law. Theonomy is saying he should be obeying the particulars of the Mosaic judicial law. I am not saying that, and neither is the Westminster Confession. Well, the Westminster Confession does say further than the general equity thereof. Yes, which theonomists take to mean as much as you possibly can, and which probably the Westminster Confession, when it was being um, drafted, meant... Uh, in terms of the concept of general equity, which is a standard concept not only in English law, and it was Englishmen who drew up the Westminster Confession for the most part. Um, Scott's contribution was significant, but not so numerous. Um, and it's got a long tradition throughout Western jurisprudence. But you see, the theonomist debate accepts the, 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 uh, the thing about equity. That if you argue with the... Con if you take up the confession statement on the equity of the law, um, <coughs> you find that theonomists wouldn't disagree with you. The problem is this, really, that in our modern pietist ethos, what has happened is that 
I believe personally with it, the concept of general equity is taken as somehow just a personal internalization of principles. But this, what the, what the uh, confession is arguing is that the, the civil magistrate must apply the general equity of the judicial law. That is the statement of the confession. Yes, but what is that, ge what is that general equity? Well, yes, but that's, that's an argument that, we, that theonomists argue about between themselves. But the, the theonomist argument is that the, uh, the, the, the magistrate, the state, should enforce the general equity of the judicial law. That's the confession statement, that's the theonomist statement. Yes, but can, just, let me just finish this one. The, the general equity is, I would understand, very much the way I've expressed it. Looking at the judicial law and saying, is there anything here that applies to our circumstances? Uh, taking it that the magistrate should have a commitment. Now, I, I, I think this is important. The, magistrate, the magistrate's ethics are not derived from any other system. They are derived from Scripture. Well, have I misunderstood you then? Because it seems to me what you're saying is the magistrate can look at this, the general equity of the judicial law, learn from it, but then ignore it. Because it seems to me that that's what you're arguing. No, I'm saying he can look at the particulars of the Mosaic law and say these just don't apply anymore. For instance, let me, let me take a specific example. I agree with you over that. Well, then we're not arguing over anything. Uh, but let's say I, I took the instance of there is no prison. Yeah. Prison's not an option in the Old Testament law. Uh, I'm not saying, and I think theonomists would be required to say, that there should not be prisons for certain offences. That, that uh, Say, theft. Take, take, let's take the specific case of theft. Should someone who steals be sent to prison? As I understand theonomy, it would say, looking at the Old Testament judicial law, prison is not an option for theft, therefore there should be no prison imprisonment for theft. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, looking at the Old Testament law, it was provided for in terms of compensation. There may very well be a role for compensation in terms of general equity in the present situation. But how do you um, compensate uh, when it's someone uh, who will refuse to uh, go through with a compensation procedure? There may very well be a role for imprisonment. I'm saying that the standard, thou shalt not steal, is biblical, it is basic, it is the moral law. The politician is trying to uh, apply that standard in his way of proceeding. He can look to scripture for enlightenment, but the specific law of the Mosaic standards is not binding. It is only insofar as the general equity thereof may require. The general equity binding. I mean, the trouble is, I'm not entirely. <laughs> forgive me if this seems somewhat um, rather stark. I'm just trying to. It seems to me that you want to have a cake and eat it at the end of the day. You want to have it both ways. And who's going to decide? You're going to decide at the end of the day. It's, it's really at the end of the day what you're arguing for is that the. That the uh, the magistrate makes his own decision oh, yes. whether he rejects it or accepts it. I'm saying that there are many decisions that scripture does not lay down black and white rules for. Well, that I you are. agree with that, but there are, there are those where it does. In the judicial law, 
it laid down black and white rules for Old Testament Israel. And we have got to work out. And we may, we Christians may differ over what the general equity thereof requires. And in fact, that's what the Westminster Confession divines were, were getting at. They were saying, you can't simply take these rules and say, here they are. You've got to take these rules and say, what are they about? And does it work now? Does it apply now? But the basic standards, um, the basic standards are scriptural standards. Um, I, I don't, I'm not aware of having my cake and eating it, but I'll think about what you're saying. Carrying on a broader scale, mm. um, you said that when Jonah preached at Nineveh, he appealed on the basis of moral law as revealed in the, New Test- uh, in the, the um, Ten Commandments. And this is therefore the basis of the church's appeal you know, to the Ninevehs of today. So we can say, um, you know, it's contrary to what God the Creator has demanded. I just wonder if you could say a bit more about that, because it, it rings, has a ring of truth about it, but still in practice, when it comes to talking about, uh, you know, keeping Sunday special, or in terms of uh, marriage, uh, you know, that it, it's, it's always quite hard to, to argue this is a creation ordinance rather than a... Would you mind exploring that area for us? Yes, I think that's a very valuable point because certainly when it comes to keeping Sunday special, you have a great gulf to get across when you're talking with ordinary people, (laughs) when you're talking with many so-called Christians. Um, You'll not find it in the book of Jonah that Jonah preached the moral law. Uh, you, you find there that he was told to go and preach against their sin and the, the violence that they were using. I, I was trying to, I was giving my explanation of how uh, he would have been able to say that is transgression, that, that is sin. There, there must be some standard. There's no transgression unless there's a standard. And that standard I was taking as the creation standard, not anything peculiar to Israel but something that comes from God as creator. The extent to which that can be applied effectively in modern preaching depends on the enlightenment of man's conscience, in the individual's conscience. Um, Men naturally suppress the truth that's within them. And I wouldn't by any means say that every aspect of the moral law can be pressed home equally effectively with each individual, in each individual situation. But it's a standard uh, reformed um, understanding of one of the uses of the law that is to convince of sin, to convince man that he is out of step with God. And the, the moral law as such still has a very valid role there. But I wouldn't have thought, well, I I personally wouldn't try to do that in the first instance on the basis of, say, the fourth commandment. I I think that there are other commandments that one can get a a more red hearing for. And we're really talking about getting a hearing for the gospel, uh, awakening uh, a sense of need so that the, the provision of Christ can be presented. And there are, there are other aspects that are easier. Now, uh, the marriage situation, I, I think, again, that that is one that 
perhaps not in a, a pulpit situation, but certainly in an individual situation, can be very effectively pressed home uh, in terms of the, the sheer misery. That's, you know, that's an apologetic argument. You see, I, I personally have two sets of arguments in my mind. One is the argument from the standard of God's word. And I can present that, and I will present it to those who don't believe the standard of God's word, saying, you should know this. But I equally recognize that there is another level of argument which says, well, let's see where you are and work from there. That, to my mind, is Paul at the Areopagus. He's saying, look, this is what you believe. Let me start from there and build on from that. Uh, So there are the two styles of argument. I think one needs, in an evangelistic situation, to say, this is what God's law requires. But then there's the other argument, now can you see what ills affect society when that is not applied, which is much more an ad hominem, uh, apologetic style of argument. And the moral law does work. Not in all, not in all, 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 all aspects of it, I grant you. But that's because man um, suppresses certain aspects more readily than others. I suppose I was just wondering whether, I mean, do we have a responsibility to really try and safeguard society by, I suppose, pushing for uh, your reform? Let's, let, let's leave the Sunday thing, but uh, mm. reform on um, you know, the standards in, in sexual relationships and all the rest. I mean, do we just sort of get on and live our lives as, as Christians and try and make sure that we stand out as different, which is what you've been arguing a lot? Or are you, in what you've been saying in that first lecture, really um, challenging the, the Christian church to go out and, and say, look, for the health of society, yes. obedience to moral law is, is essential? Well, I think, that's, I think both aspects are there. I take them from the Sermon on the Mount, if you want a New Testament basis. Uh, he are the light of the world, or is the earth of and the salt of the earth. And those correspond to the two tasks. The light is setting forth the standard positively. That is, Christian living according to God's law, radiating uh, the, the message of this is the way life should be lived. Salt is to prevent corruption. Salt is rubbed into the flesh to, so that it will be preserved. Uh, salt is the Christian forcing the world to recognize the reality of moral standards and of the standards of God's word. Um, Recognizing the moral standards won't save the world, it just prevents it from getting worse. But I think we've lost confidence in being salt. Um, Yes. Because I I, I think... Uh, perhaps we've, we've lost sight of the mandate that you were suggesting that this is a moral law for the whole of creation. I think yes, I think you're right. That there's a sense in which the church is suffering from a crisis of confidence of the evangelical community, because that's really what I'm talking about most of the time when I'm saying church. I'm thinking of the evangelical community. We're, we're no longer sure of ourselves, and we're no longer sure of ourselves not so much because of what the world said, but because of what. Radical criticism is said within the church. Uh, Can I just go off on a slight tangent? Um, That's one of the reasons why the Old Testament 
uh, is no longer preached as much. The, the, the critics, they dissected it, reanalyzed it, chopped it up, and at the end of the day there was nothing left that MD could preach because you were never quite sure who'd said this or when they'd said it, and the whole authority of what was there had been undermined. Uh, and to a certain extent, the, the evangelical community wants to, feels it has to apologize for God's word. Yeah, Jonah didn't come and apologize in Nineveh. Uh, and that, that, that's perhaps an, uh, the, the clearest Old Testament analogy. Uh, the other prophets were speaking to people who were at least nominally uh, believers in the Lord. Jonah had the more difficult task of going to a completely pagan community. Uh, you don't apologize for God's word. You present it as the standard. But at the same time, because it's God's word, it's a reasonable standard. It's something that when disobeyed has in horrendous consequences, not just eternally, but also now. And people often, well, we're much more aware of now than we are of eternity. And you can make an approach on the, the current consequences when so often to say that that's going to involve eternal woe uh, doesn't resonate, to use one of the modern words, uh, with their way of thinking. Brian, I think. Yeah, I think in the background, my question I'm trying to hold on to um, God's character is just and yet merciful. And I'm thinking of the incident come from America recently about the um, capital punishment and the gas chamber and the reaction of so many people around me that I know to, I guess, what my term is liberal humanists, uh, being horrified. My own reactions informed by the whole of the Bible is that retribution, punishment and the destruction of sin is perfectly appropriate. And I guess the question is, how does one hold on to that and yet also be informed by what we particularly revealed of God's mercy through Jesus Christ? And just taking as an example, not necessarily assuming its application to this, the incident of the adulteress who was brought for punishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was horrified by what went on in America. I, I personally think it was gross cruelty to have somebody waiting on death row, was it 15, 20 years or something like that? That's got nothing to do with biblical standards at all. Uh, now, I say that quite apart from the question of whether there should be a death penalty. Uh, just because one particular state has this method of inflicting the death penalty doesn't argue in really for or against the, the basic question. Uh, and what went on in the States uh, is a, was immoral, in, in my view. It should be condemned. Uh, looking at the Old Testament point of view and what went on with Old Testament administration of justice, there was certainly the fact that it was done very speedily. That's where Old Testament funerals as well. But that's another matter. Um, but the, the, there wasn't this long delay. Now, it may well be that that was because of the nature of the community. It was a small 
generally rural community. If something went wrong, it was known about quite widely. Matters could be organised fairly. But even so, a modern community and greater problems of organisation, there's no way you can stretch it out. And it's as well, you see, here we come back to another one. I don't know in what way the death penalty should be carried out. I have no particular view in the matter, but uh, I'd have thought that there are certainly humane and inhumane ways even of doing it. Uh, as regards the legitimacy of the death penalty, I have no doubts uh, for murder, for premeditated murder. Uh, uh, that is singled out uh, very explicitly in Scripture. It's mentioned particularly in the Noachic Covenant that the person who sheds man's blood, by man, his blood shall be shed. And um, in the Mosaic Law, the, uh, that was the only penalty where the death, the only crime where the death penalty wasn't allowed to be uh, mitigated in any way. Uh, the, the death penalty for deliberate murder was something that had to be uh, shown. Um, so it's obviously divinely required. And it's divinely required because of the basic, I would have thought, and this is me arguing now, not at the level of scripture, but at the level of the reasonableness of it, that, as scripture itself says, man is made in God's image, and it's to prevent an outbreak of the violence that permeated the generation before the flood. Uh, and I'm personally quite convinced that the violence that's been spreading throughout the world and throughout our own land in recent years is a direct result of our neglect, our, our willful neglect of the death penalty uh, for murder. Uh, the, it's very much more difficult to trace moral and spiritual cause and effect than it is physical causes and effects. But I, I think that uh, the, the, a land that has deliberately given up the death penalty for someone who has committed premeditated murder is a land that is sentencing itself to a generation of violence, a generation of increasing loss of life. Now that, that's at a, an apologetic sort of level. I, I have no hesitation as regards the legitimacy of the death penalty. Now you say uh, the woman who was caught in adultery uh, taken or <clears throat> let's do what the BBC News does allegedly taken in adultery or taken allegedly in adultery it sometimes creeps in in the wrong place grammatically um, <laughs> it's not actually many commentators feel this was a set up job but there doesn't seem to me to be any great problem over it because it is one of the areas where the legal requirements weren't fully met. The witnesses that were required weren't prepared to, to state that they'd seen it. So that even at a technical level, uh, it wasn't a proven case. If they'd had a proven case, Jesus was the last person they'd have brought it to. They'd have taken it to the normal civil authorities. It was obviously something that I think was engineered uh, to as a, as a test of his, of his stance on the matter. And he seems to indicate there that that is one place where the, the death penalty, even if the matter had been proved, that the death penalty may not any longer be relevant. Uh, I, I personally uh, 
would keep the death penalty only for the um, premeditated murder. Uh, because, well, I interpret the general equity thereof in terms of the Noachic Covenant. Um, sorry, but I just couldn't resist that one. Can you explain to me, in view of the fact of the prominence you give to here to Noah over Moses and many other people do, why it is that Moses and Elijah appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, not Noah and Elijah? <laughs> I'll give you another answer back. It's a Scots way, quite a question back. I've never been able to work out why it wasn't Abraham and Moses. Uh, you know, I, I, why, or at least Abraham, Moses, and Elijah. Uh, why Abraham wasn't on the Mount of Transfiguration has always baffled me. I can. S- what about Noah as well? Well, what about Noah as well? Why, no, why Moses and not Noah? If the Noahic covenant is the one that we should be under Christ now, uh, stressing more than Moses. Because that was the stressing, the Mount of Transfiguration, when he stripped away all the pious commentaries that they made about it, was a continuity between Moses, the prophets, and Jesus Christ. Oh, there's undoubtedly the case that it's, it's the law and the prophets. Uh, the, the, that seems to be Moses representing the law and uh, Elijah the prophets. No, no, but, no it, I don't see why, because why not David, why not uh, Abraham? Uh, they're two representative figures. Well, it's pre-flood. Yes, no, no, the, the Noachic covenant is really after the flood. No, I, I, I don't think so. I think that Moses uh, is not, is really presenting it to a greater extent the same truths that Noah did. I mean, Noah, as the covenant mediator, is also the one who has saved people. Noah is the one who has come uh, through the flood with his family. Uh, Moses is the one who, in God's providence, leads the people through the Red Sea and gets the covenant on the other side. Uh, There's greater detail in the Mosaic covenant, but it's fully in accordance. It's a further outworking of the Noachic covenant. It seems all the time people want to go back to know they shy off from Moses. Well, you see, I would say that I'll go back to the creation. Uh, If you're pushing me, I'll follow Christ and say, but from the beginning it was not so. And Christ is quite happy going back to the beginning to correct the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law. This is, I I don't know, my my reading of theonomic literature is, I've read quite a bit, but I've never seen this one discussed. And that that is that particular uh, setting aside. I'm sure they do, because the, um, the divorce regulations setting aside... Uh, the Mosaic Law. From the beginning, it was not so. Yes, but you, you alluded to that earlier on. Yes, that's right. But uh, in actual fact, it has been addressed within the economic... Oh, I'm sure it has. They, they've tried everything. The, point is the interpretation... There's, there's another interpretation to the woman... Uh, sorry. No, the business about um, divorcing a woman for any, any mm. reason. The Pharisees, can we divorce? Mm. Why does Moses say we can divorce mm. somebody for any reason? But of course, see, uh, Moses didn't say he could divorce someone for any reason. There had to be unseemliness or uncleanness. Uh, and 
And the, the Pharisees were relying on their oral traditions. And the strong tradition then was the weak tradition of Hillel, that you could divorce your wife if she quite ruined your dinner, as well as if she didn't quite look as nice as you wanted her to. And that was very, very common. Divorce was a, a big thing there. And what Jesus said uh, there, he didn't overturn Moses' law in any sense. They were misstating Moses' law. And he said, look, there is divorce because people sin. That's why the hardness of men's hearts brings a, a, a divorce law, because there is sin. That doesn't really overturn the, uh, the, the divorce. Uh, no, but he appealed back to creation. Yeah. Oh, yes, but, but he I'm appealed to the that. earlier uh, enactment, the earlier position. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong in appealing to Noah or as earlier, as more foundational no, than I'm Moses. No, I'm not saying there is. It's a question of emphasis, isn't it, really? The, the Bible emphasizes uh, Moses, not Noah. But you're emphasizing Noah all the time, not Moses. That's all the time, same, just an answer to one specific question. Well, can, can I just, 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 a, just a, I mean, first of all, uh, I'll go back to Brian, as he asked the question, which then you... What did I do? Are you, Brian, are you happy with... The answer you've got there. Do you want to follow that up? Um, yes, I'm still. I guess my question is about this. What I feel this tension in what's revealed of God's character between His demand for justice and taking your own point, uh, taking the example that in premeditated murder, even restricting it to that, you must pay with your life. That's a punishment, and it, it's that tension between that and the merciful side, and I wasn't um, putting the example of the adulteress as, as the only one, but rather just to characterise that other theme that seems to be there. So it's, a, it's the apparent tension between the, the, those two aspects of the revelation. Really looking, it really comes down to what God is in himself. And if it was a man saying... His first, the first thing he does is to look after his own rights and prerogatives. It would be totally presumptuous. But God as God, uh, when his holiness is infringed, when men whom he has created act contrary to his will, th there is a real affront to, to the majesty of God that is the essence of sin. And the sin of uh, taking away the life of one created in the image of God is accorded by God on the basis of Scripture a particularly heinous, as a particularly heinous offence. Now, that God is also merciful uh, doesn't seem to me to come into direct conflict with that. I, I don't know whether this is answering your particular point or not, but I could see situation where someone who has committed an offence, murder, worthy of the death penalty, uh, repents before the penalty is enacted, and although they still are executed, they are eternally saved. Uh, so that I, I can't... Uh, I, I can see how at a certain level you can say, yes, there's mercy and this is strict justice. Is there not a clash <coughs> I don't think there is, because I think they're coming at different levels. And God has 
God's saving purpose, gathering in the full number of his elect, is based on the preservation of order in human society so that the church's task of evangelism may be carried out. Uh, what happened before the flood led to a total disintegration of, of human society, the violence that erupted. And the specific requirement regarding the death penalty in this respect is the divine answer for what happens after the flood and in the new set of circumstances so that the drama of redemption can be played out to its fullest. And I would say that the, the mercy that is being shown and extended in the drama of redemption uh, m is more than sufficient to, to wipe out any qualms uh, about justice uh, being executed in the case of the death penalty. I, I don't think they're directly clashing. I, I can see how there may be a seeming clash, but in terms of the total uh, situation, I don't think there is. The gentleman over here has been trying to ask you a question. Um, the Messiah, when he came, fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law and so affected his generation and is affecting our generation, every generation. And the, the church, being the ambassador of the Messiah in the earth today, by rights should be living out its life, reflecting fully the Messiah's um, aspirations for the world. Now, you said that the... Um, what did you say? <laughs> you said that Messiah, something like this, Messiah instituted or brought into being a new era. Mm -hmm. That was the institution of the new covenant. And you, you've focused on Jeremiah's statement of what that new covenant was to be. And that new covenant seems to me was the same as the old covenant, except that it was to be written on the hearts of the people. Instead of, instead of on tablets of stone or on scrolls. Now, um, if, the, if the church is to function in the world and affect the world, then it has to live the life that Messiah would have it to live. The salt of the earth, the light of the world. Um, if the law is written on our hearts, then every inclination of our heart should, should, what should I say, reflect the law, reflect, and you said the law was an expression of the Almighty. So if we have actually entered into the new covenant as people, then our lives should be an expression of the Almighty. It should be an outliving of the law. And so we can only appeal to the, the community at large 
to, lo- to look at the law of the Almighty, if we ourselves, living, entering into the new, new covenant, are expressing that law. So, what I'm trying to say is this. If we as believers are not, um, this is a hypothetical question, if we as believers are not expressing the fullness of the law, moral law, have we entered, have we as individuals entered into the new covenant? I think I agreed with most of what you said. Uh, the, there is the obligation on the Christian to reflect the law. There is, because that is the expression of what God unchangeably requires. And the, uh, the, there is no doubt that that is the, the goal, the standard. But we have not yet arrived. Uh, we are both in of the, the new creation and yet there is still much that, that awaits us. There is only one who has ever perfectly fulfilled the law and in this life and that's Christ himself. And yes, it is part of the new covenant prophecy that the law is written in the heart of the believer. But in many respects, that prophecy is still only partially fulfilled. They shall all know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest. There will be no longer any need to say, know the Lord. But we still live in the age when Christian exhortation is needed because our knowledge is partial still. Our achievement, our understanding is still partial. There is the already of the new covenant and there is the not yet that will only be finally realized when our Lord returns and we are in his presence. And it is the measure of Christian piety, it's the measure of Christian achievement, the extent to which we do live lives now that reflect Christ, that model Christ, that are light. We often have to confess that we we fall far short. Uh, We are not yet perfect. But the, the, the goal and the standard is very real. And it is constantly before the individual who, who's pressing towards the mark. So the, the need to show forth... Well, Christ was born under the law. If you want to work out what sort of life Christ lived, you learn it from the law. Uh, and therefore, the same as we are grappling with our own partial knowledge, as we're grappling with our own ability to conceal even from ourselves the full demands that God places upon us, we can learn more of what Christ is wanting, what the Messiah is wanting from us, by uh, by studying the law. So, I, I, yes, uh, I think that uh, adding the idea of the, the new covenant being here and yet it's the full prophecy not being realized yet. That tension that we are now in this world and not of it, uh, to what you said, yes, I, I agree, yes. Can I just, uh, I will come to you, just a second. Cole, is it, is it related to this one? Yes, sure, yeah, right. It's worth reminding ourselves, 
scripture which says that <coughs> the law was given by Moses, but the grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. What's the relevance of that in this context? What do you say? It seems to set the law in one, on one side and grace and truth on the other. I would say it's emphasizing the, the prior attitudes that are needed, um, that, that it's very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 23. Uh, about uh, I wouldn't have you neglecting the tithe, providing there are these basic attitudes of, of faithfulness uh, uh, in your, your attitude. Uh, Jesus, when he comes, is expressing something more than was expressed in the law because the Mosaic law, in its structure, its salvation, obligation, fullness of blessing, and Christ is addressing the situation of those who have fallen short. Thank you. I, I must um, draw this to a halt, at least formally.